for nine years in a row, ranking Arizona's number one most trusted referral network, rosieonthehouse.com. Information that you can't get anywhere else. And 30 years of Rosie on the House. Welcome to hour number four here at Rosie on the House. This is our fourth and final hour of our weekly Saturday morning broadcast. This hour is designated specifically to one area item of the home. This month in December, we're focusing on the different tools as it relates to not only gift giving, but our 30th anniversary toolkit that we put together. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But real quick, if you missed uh, the rest of the broadcast or you're just joining us, it's the first Saturday of the month, which means it is the kickoff to Christmas in Arizona at Arizona's official Christmas city, Prescott, Arizona. The parade starts at one o'clock. There's almost nowhere in Arizona uh, that's three hours away from Prescott. If you were with us during our 7 o'clock hour, you heard about all the different miles and miles of trails around Arizona, and particularly around Prescott, Arizona, that you could uh, go and enjoy and stretch your legs and enjoy some beautiful mountain fresh air before the courthouse lighting that starts at 6 o'clock. They get together on the north side of the court, uh, do the Christmas reading, sing some carols, do a countdown, and of the 180 trees, at least 130 of them all light up there in Courthouse Square. It's it's a lot of fun and really helps you get kicked off to uh, you know, Christmas in Arizona. It can be hard to put yourself in that Christmas mood in a very brown desert southwest but this is a great place to get it all kicked off and just a a fun family tradition we started here at rosie on the house oh it's it's eight or nine years now and we've actually been involved in the parade Uh, my sisters were cloggers in the 4-h clogger clogged in this parade for at least the last 20 years so it's it's been a part of the romero tradition for a lot of years and a great great family atmosphere but uh, back to our topic of this Saturday's broadcast. It follows our home maintenance calendar. We just had a big meeting with the team this week and finalized all the details for 2019. So that's going to print. takes about a week, and then it'll start hitting uh, inboxes here in two weeks. All you have to do is send us the address you would like the calendar to be delivered, and we'll get it shipped to you for free. It really helps create enhanced content for us here at Rosie on the House because it outlines the entire year of what we will be talking about. In the 10 o'clock hour, again, it's always focused on something specific to the home. December's tool month. When we go forward into January, we're talking appliances, February's plumbing, so on and so forth. And we cover each one of those topics in depth. We also have our weekly to-dos. We cover that in the 9 o'clock hour. So you get to see what you'll be learning at Rosie on the House, and it helps our team stay focused and working far enough ahead that we can add all kinds of enhanced rich media, images, video, in addition to the audio and text we've been doing regularly for the last 30 years. So you would just email us, calendar to info at rosieonthehouse.com. We'll get you added to the mailing list. And you don't have to sign up again. If you signed up for last year, you'll get one again this year until you ask us to stop receiving it, and then we'll take your address off the mailing list. Okay, to this week's topic. This toolkit we've put together are the seven essential tools every homeowner should have. And we're going to start with the hammer 
because as far as any type of archaeological research can show, it is the first form and oldest form of tool invented by man. Of course, its early existence was just picking up a rock and smashing whatever it is you were smashing, whether it was an animal <laughs> or whatever the case, trying to crack open a coconut or pecan. As time moved on, people started figuring out how to take strips of animal hide and use it to tie these stones that they've then crafted into shapes onto these sticks. And you've all seen that iconic picture of the old stone man sitting there chiseling away, making his wheel for the first time. And it stayed like that until really uh, the forging technology became into an existence and we started matching machined metal with hand-carved wood. And it stayed like that basically up until the Industrial Revolution when all kinds of changes and ergonomic designs started hitting the market. Uh, the oldest archaeological site that they have found evidence of hammers being used is uh, near Lake Turkana in Kenya, Africa. And in doing the research for this, the most interesting thing we found, did you know there's actually a hammer museum? And we were so excited when we found this and we thought, man, what a great interview this Paul Davis, the founder of the Hammer Museum, would make. He's been a collector of hammers for over 50 years and has a perception and, and a goal of self-sufficiency and homesteading. The problem came in to play location. They're located in Haines, Alaska. He's closed. The museum's closed until May. Now, we've sent him emails and we've left phone messages, but none have been returned yet. So I don't know if they just completely check out until May, but I will tell you, if I learn nothing else from that, I need to relocate my business to Alaska. <laughs> if, if you can shut down for six or seven months and still make a living, that may overcome the cold. I don't know, but... Going through his website, there was three unique hammers I have never seen before. They were all within the last hundred years that, as far as I can tell, they don't even make anymore. One's called a fence wire assembly and stretching tool. And this was designed in the 50s when barbed wire was being used extensively for cattle ranching. And it did all of those things. It would help you put the little staple pin over the wire and hammer that staple pin into your wood post to hold uh, your barbed wire. It would help stretch the wire as you were trying to tighten it. And it, the image that they have, a tool by James Birch, patented in 1945. A very unique, the top of the hammer looks pretty traditional. It's when you get to a couple notches that are cut below the head of the hammer, and instead of a handle, it's a ring. And the way the, the the reason for the ring is so that cowboys could slide it over their cat their saddle horns to carry it as they're mending fence along the way. Another one that was really cool was um, this multi-tool, what they call stovetop lifter. It's a combination tool developed back in 1866. It was a multi-purpose kitchen tool designed for lifting Dutch ovens. Uh, moving your hot cooking plates and also hammering the lids back into place if you didn't have, if you didn't set it properly or didn't have the proper, you know, like oven mitts to, to pick the 
to set the lid back on top of your Dutch oven or whatever cooking pot you had. Then there was the sauce setting and swagging hammer. And this one's really unique because it's a hammer designed to help you straighten and work your saw. From the wood handle, this little metal shaft extends and there's a circular head on the top. The left side, it's notched. And what this would let you do is you could slide that over your saw and if it was bent, it could help you tweak it left and right and try and straighten your saw back out. And then on the other side, there's another shaft with a blunt head, and this was used for swag, which is a technique used for squashing the teeth of your saw blade if you're trying to broaden the width of your cut. I'm not exactly sure why that would have been needed um, back in that time and era, but uh, that's a time and era. I didn't have circular saws. I didn't have modern machines that you know did all of this for me. So those were... Uh, some neat things that we found along with this entire photo collection they have designated to the industry of wood handle building starting off with where the shag bark hickory trees are grown how they're milled how they're cut into the 48 inch lengths what they were sized down to before they started hand crafting these handles again turning came in later as technology developed and it's an extremely fascinating website, and we look forward to having him on at another time. Some additional things that we found while doing our research for this was tools you're likely to find complemented with the hammer, anvil, chisel, pipe draft, start drill, you have the punch and the tap. The physics of hammering was extremely interesting to me. It's probably a lot more technical than most of the uh, our listening audience finds interesting, but I'm, I'm a detail guy, and... It was broken down into four different simple areas. You've got the force amplifier, which is converting the mechanical work of the active hammering into kinetic energy. And the head of the hammer, that's equal to the length of swing times the force produced by the muscle and gravity. Then you've got the head mass, and this is the energy delivered to the nail or whatever you're trying to strike. And each blow is equivalent to half the mass of the head times this head speed at the time of impact. And then you have the handle. Basically, what this breaks down to is the longer the handle, the more force can be delivered. But the harder it is to strike, to hit your targeted strike zone. Then you've got the gravity, and that one's pretty self-explanatory. If you're hammering in a downward motion, uh, it's going <laughs> to have more gravity behind it. If you're trying to hammer overhead, you're working against gravity, so it reduces your strike impact. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about the proper swing of a hammer. Have you ever sat down and pondered how, how to properly swing and minimize your strikes? If you've ever watched the movie Karate Kid 2, the way Mr. Miyagi does it, I'm not going to critique Mr. Miyagi's karate techniques or the crane technique or any of the other specialty drum techniques, but his hammering technique leads a, leaves a lot to be desired. Here at Rosie on the House with you every Saturday morning. This week we're talking hammers. Uh, then we also have the uh, channel lock plier set we'll be talking about this year along with this month, along with the Stanley tools that are in our toolkit and the toolbox that holds it all together for our 30th anniversary, for our Thank You for 30 broadcast anniversary. And when we're not here on Saturday mornings, all week long, you can reach us at rosyonthehouse.com or email info at rosyonthehouse.com. I had a hammer, 
I hammer in the morning, I hammer in the evening, all over this land. Now, I know it's not your job to sit around and think about how to properly use a hammer, but it's ours. That's part of the trade industry, and that's what we do. We're going to go through, in the next segment, all the different trades that rely on all the different types of hammers. But for the most part, the swing is done fairly the same when you're talking about driving. That doesn't apply to chiseling or when you're doing any kind of hammer that requires a mallet. But when we're talking driving nails, there's a lot of mistakes that are very commonly seen. Number one, how you hold it. Do not choke up on your hammer. That is the perfect sign that says, I have no idea what I'm doing, and I want to be here as long as I possibly can and take as many possible swings to drive this nail into this piece of wood. You hold the handle at the very end of the hammer. I mean, you could leave just a little bit overlipping the heel of your thumb, but you don't want much, and you don't want to hold it too tight. Sure, you don't want it flying out of your hand, as you're in the swinging motion, the weight of the hammer and the centrifugal force isn't going to fly out of your hand unless it's sweaty or you're just being reckless. So you don't want to over-squeeze because that's going to wear out your forearm really quick. Number two, don't use two hands. <laughs> you can switch hands if one gets tired, but you never use two hands in one if you're doing a standard nail. And there be cases... Uh, you could use two hands for sledgehammers and larger hammers like that. But just your hammer and nail, don't use two hands. Now, here's the biggest one we see is how to hold the nail. So many people, you grab the very end of the nail, the very strike edge, the very point, and they hold it onto the wood surface, and then they hit the head of the hammer. That's wrong thing you want to do. It makes sense. You think, oh, if I miss, I'm going to put my finger as far away as I can make it. But here's what happens. If you put your fingers against the solid edge, you swing your hammer, you miss that head and you hit your hammers, having your fingers already directly against that solid surface hurts a whole heck of a lot more than if you would hold the nail just underneath the head of the hammer and start your typing method that way. That way, if you miss and you hit your fingers, you've got an, an inch, if not more, depending on the size of nail, of buffer between your finger and the solid wood that you're not going to directly smash the head of the hammer onto your finger against this hard material. So hold your fingers up towards the head. Tapping motion, not a big deal. All you're trying to do is set your nail. Once your nail's set, uh, and I like to go at least twice the depth of the point. You know, the nail is a round shaft and there's a point that it's cut into it. For it to be good and solid, I like to tap it twice as deep as the point is. If you do it with just the point, if you hit it slightly off, it is so unforgiving that the nail often shoots out. So set it a little, a little deeper than the point, if not twice as deep. Uh, as you perfect it and move along, uh, you can set it shallower and shallower. Now, it takes, they say, the expert, 18,000 repetitions to become an expert at something. If you did four nails per stud, two on the top and two on the bottom, that would take 4,500 studs before you became an expert. So if you did 100 studs a day in 45 days, you could be an expert hammer swinger. Now, here's the critical part. 
Do not move your shoulder or your wrist. So many people, they just tap it with their wrist and they don't move their elbow. Or they bring their shoulder all the way up and all the way down, all the way up, all the way down. You don't want a wide range of vertical movement on your elbow, but you want to extend your forearm from your elbow back and forth. Use your wrist and shoulder in the slightest amount, but the main force comes from the elbow through your forearm and slightly at the end on your wrist. That's your proper motion. If your shoulder starts getting sore, you're not using your right muscles. If your wrist is getting sore, you're not moving your right muscles. If you start to feel it in your forearm, that's your right muscle for the hammer motion. It's not brute force of the person that is most critical in sinking the nail. It's the it's the momentum of the heavy metal head on top of the hammer coming down. That's what does the work, not your body. You do the proper motion right, most of the work is going to be done by the hammer and not the driving force of your arm. Finally, watch the head of the nail. Nothing else in your world exists while you're swinging a hammer but the very head of the nail you're trying to sink. The way a hammer is designed, it should have a little bit of a curvature on it so that when you finally drive the head of the nail flush with the surface, it should actually push the nail just below the surface of the material. That holds it in tight and keeps it from backing out. A couple things to watch for. If you end up with a lot of split wood, there's a couple things going on here. It's either too dry or the nail you're using is too big for the wood you're working with. You can blunt your nail, and that's where you turn it upside down, put the head down, and you hit the point of the nail, and that flattens it. That will then splinter the threads instead of bending the threads of the wood and can prevent your wood from splitting. You could also get a drill out and pre-drill, but that takes a long time. What a lot of the old-time carpenters used to do is they would take their wood-handled hammer, core it out and fill it with beeswax, and they would take their nail, run it into the beeswax, and that would help slide the nail into the wood on dryer wood. Something Rosie taught me, take that nail and rub it on your skin. The oils from your faces will also help drive that nail smoothly. But just be warned, you're going to end up with lots of metal uh, material and discoloration on your face that uh, you'll have to get washed off later. All right, when we get back, we're going to go into all the different types of hammers that are available on the market and all the different trades that rely on the hammer. In this segment of Hammers, we're going to talk about all the different types that are available. And we're going to start by talking about what we would consider non-building trade related hammers. Each one of these professions could be considered a trade, but not all of them have to do with building. Like, for example, a judge's gavel. Technically, when you look at it and the physical characteristics of it, it's classified as a hammer, but it's not doing anything other than making noise. A chef's meat tenderizer, again, exact same characteristics and technically a hammer. Some of them can have a very jagged edge used to tenderize meat. You could find them in many kitchens and restaurants across the valley. I think we have two different types uh, at our house, and one we don't even isn't just for meat. Another one's specifically for garlics or mashing other vegetables if you're putting them and if you're trying to get them in a very fine liquid state. Rock climbers. Sure, there are people that make a profession rock climbing as it relates to like technical rescues, 
as a recreation mountain climbers, it's just a recreational hammer for scaling the north side of Camelback Mountain. And and the list can go on, but we're going to move on to what we call the brass hammer. Now, this is a non-sparking hammer often used in oil fields. You've also got mallets. Now, these are smaller than mauls, but they're designed for uh, what we would call a non-driving hammer. You're not trying to sink a nail. You're not trying to drive a shaft. You're not trying to crush something. It's more used when we're trying to shape something. I've got, personally, a rawhide mallet where it's a wood handled and it's a very thick rawhide rolled up very tight with a screw set from the top down into the wood handle and that's what I use for my leather working whether I'm punching holes in the leather work for sewing or uh, more commonly used for is controlling the decorative part of leather working where you're punching in your patterns and you're shaping your designs there's also mallets that are made out of rubber. There's mallets that are made out of plastics. And there's mallets that are made out of wood. And these are some of the oldest forms of not rubber or plastic, but the wood maul is arguably the oldest form of, of wood hammer that we can have, uh, that we've ever found record of throughout the history of mankind. Then you get into teening and peening. And these should be pretty obvious what they're for. You got it. Those are hammers that are used in metalworker industries. And you've got plenty of them. You've got the ball peen, the chisel peen, the cross peen, the diagonal peen, the point peen. And if there was one thing I was better at was metalworking. That is a trade and a skill I've often admired and thought, man, I wish I had the time to designate just a little bit more to honing and developing my metalworking skills, but it's just not uh, been a reality yet. So, But when we get into wood framing, or carpentry hammers. I mean, ha roofers have their own hammers. Drywallers have their own hammers. Framers have their own hammers. Trim carpenters have their own hammers. Electricians have their own hammers. Masons have their own hammers. And all have a different function based on the materials they're working with and a different function. The weights are different. The sizes are different. The shapes, the, the list can go on. When it comes to selecting the proper hammer, for the average residence, we're probably looking at a carpenter's hammer. Now, there's a claw hammer and what's called a rip hammer. Claw's probably the most basic one you've seen in and around the hardware stores where the hooks used to pull nails are curved, whereas a rip hammer it's or a framing hammer, it's a lot straighter. And I personally like those a lot better, even for your average homeowner. What happens in a lot of those claw hammer applications is if you're trying to pull a nail, you end up in a situation where there's such an arc in the hammer, if you've got a stuck or stubborn nail, that harsh arc can start to bend the nail or it starts to push the head of the uh, the strike part of the hammer into the material and can leave a dent. One way you can avoid that is to get another piece of material, like a wood block, put it on the surface, then slide the head of the hammer. <clears throat> so you've now created, if you picture your flat surface and the nail head sticking out about an inch, we'll put a little block of wood in front of that. A two by four is really one and a half inch. So this piece of wood is now an inch and a half higher. Well, you can now use that as additional leverage to slide the claws underneath and pull the nail the rest of the way without trying to jerk on it or beat up the surface that 
you're trying to pull this nail out of. But the reason I like the rip claws better is you've just got a lot more strength with them. And there's a technique that you can use called rocking, where instead of trying to pull straight out, instead of beating and beating and beating, and if that wood plank, that wood riser doesn't work either, with that rip hammer, you can rock it once you get it, the teeth wedged as far into the nail as you can, and it, the hammer won't move any farther. You can then gently rock the hammer left and right. Now, this bends the nail, but it gradually pulls it out. And it's a great technique that, in a lot of cases, I found has been the only way to get the nail out. And it's a lot harder to use the rocking technique when you've got these deep, hard-angled curves. Now, how heavy of a hammer? They'll go up to 30, 32 ounces. Now, that's a framer's hammer and something that you really don't need as a general homeowner because you're not sinking 16-penny nails into studs framing a wall. Most of your work is going to be done and on the decorative side of things, replacing trim work around the house, you know, lighter projects like that that most homeowners aren't afraid to stop and tackle. Uh, 16 ounce is very common. 20 ounce is very common. Uh, those are, are very manageable. But you can even get down into, the, into 13. And I think you're getting uh, a little light there for the majority of, of projects that, you know, it, it just puts too much work on the person and not enough work on the hammer itself, in my opinion. There's a lot of new features that have also come out with hammers over the last two or three decades alone by themselves. What well, used to always just be a straight handle, you know, you did see craftsmen back in the wood-handled uh, era at the turn of the century when lumber milling to make hickory wood handles was an entire industry by itself. They were shaping them ergonomically by hand. And then mass production came out, and you, you saw the straight sticks for a long time. Well, with the fiberglass and the steel frames, now you're starting to see a return of ergonomic handles in a lot of different applications. I, I guess it's just because I'm too used to the straight stick. I've never really gotten completely comfortable with the feel of an ergonomic hammer in my hand. They do feel good and they do swing good, but there is just something weird I can't get over. And I think it's just because I am so used to, again, the, the straight style that I grew up using. Handles are a big key. We had mentioned wood earlier. If you have a wood-handled hammer, keep it inside. Do not leave it outside. Try not to get it let, rained on. If it starts to dry out, get an oil and oil it so that it maintains its integrity. Where the wood handles often fail, the wood shrinks and the dowel that's driven into the top of the wood handle to expand the wood to compress it against the metal head of the hammer dries up and shrinks and that slides off. I remember driving nails and additional uh, objects into the top to extend the life of that hammer. But once it starts that slip, just know there's only a limited amount you're going to be able to do before you either have to get a new uh, handle that hasn't been dried out or a new hammer altogether. Steel frame hammers came along and these took a while to get off. A lot of the old time carpenters used to wood it, probably the same kind of mentality I have on the ergonomic versus the straight stick is, well, I've always used a wood one. I'm not going to go to a metal one. And a lot of people said the shock that it put on their forearm wore their arm out too fast, and that's why they preferred the wood one. Well, you've got rubberized handles now that are designed to take that shock absorber. And I will tell you, 
first metal hammer I ever bought is over 20 years old and still something I use regularly. I think my hammer collection for all the different things I counted last week was over uh, 12 different types of hammers that I've got in my shed for different types of jobs. And then you've got the leather handle that's just a beautiful look for a um, something that looks like you would find out of your grandpa's shed. It doesn't have near the shock cushion of the rubber handle, but if it's just for around the house and occasional use, aesthetically, it's going to be probably the nicest ham- looking hammer you can find. A couple real quick additions. There is a new hammer that has a magnet on the head. And what this does is instead of having to use your fingers to hold the nail, the hammer holds the nail. And you. this takes a lot of practice. It allows you to set the nail without having to hold it with your finger. And once that's set, the magnet is uh, the magnet connection isn't that hard. It's just enough so that you can move the hammer up and down and overhead and over your neck and behind you, and it won't fall off. But as soon as you make contact with the surface you're trying to nail, the nail will stay in that wood surface, and you can tap a few more times and then set it. Personally, I have found that It takes more time messing with it than it does just holding it with your finger. The real benefit comes in to very contortion-related situations where you might be trying to reach around something or reach overhead or for whatever reason you you can't use your other hand to hold the nail. That's when it becomes worth it. Otherwise, it's much faster just to hold it with your fingers, tap set it, and go from there. Other trades that rely on hammers outside of home building, uh, geologists and their excavating hammers. There's chipping hammers, joining hammers, lathing hammers, lump hammers, farrier handles for horseshoers, and sledgehammers. Although that could be applied to a home building as well, but a lot of that is more in your demolition style uh, for the start of construction. This is the Hammer Hour here at Rosie on the House. This entire month we'll be focusing on different tools, the manufacturers in America that make them, how to properly use them, the proper use and selection of these tools as tools have come a long way over the course of history. And the next segment, we dive into the hammer we've selected for the Rosie on the House 30th Anniversary Toolbox. It's a box we put together with the seven essential tools every homeowner must have. And this toolbox is American-made. The tools are American-made and the proceeds go to our three nonprofits. It's our way of saying thanks for 30 years. Bang, bang, Now the manufacturing of hammers, and we're going to focus primarily on Estwing hammers because it's a great American success story. Ernie Estwing was an immigrant from Sweden in 1916, and he was going to engineering school, working his way through it part-time as a contractor. And being never satisfied with any hammers that he could find here, he started making his own. Fast forward now to almost 100 years in manufacturing. The Estwing family still owns it, but it's operated in today's time by current president Mark Youngren, and they've expanded their line from just your traditional hammer to multiple different types of hammer and specialty hammers that they make for police departments. They make tomahawks, uh, geological hammers, the amount of different types of hammers we've covered all hour. Estring has one for almost every one of those individual trades and still made here in America. And it's not just the 330 people that they employ that you support when you buy an Estring hammer, but 
all the metal that it comes from. They don't mine their own metal. 94% of all materials in estering hammers come from America. So the materials that are coming, whether it's the rubber or the leather or the metal, all those different industries and companies that supply material to estering are being supported as well. We had a great interview from the National Hardware Show in Las Vegas over a year ago with their spokeswoman that we're going to play for you here. We're stopped now in the Est Wing booth here at the National Hardware Show in Las Vegas. You may not necessarily know the name Est Wing, but if you've ever walked by the hammer section at any hardware store, you know the product. All metal, blue handled grip, and of course, our favorite thing, it's America made. I've stopped in, I've got Stephanie Thrasher to tell us a little bit more about the Est Wing story. We're a family owned company. We've been in Rockford, Illinois since 1923. All of our hammers and axes are one piece forgings made with American steel. We love contractors and that's what we're, we're in the business to sell hammers and make hammers for everybody. When I broke into the trades right out of high school, my first hammer was a 22 ounce S-Wing framing hammer. And the hammer I use today is that same one I bought almost 18 years ago. Products made for life, definitely. And since that time, looking at the booth display here, y'all have expanded a few lines. I have seen the axes before. I keep one of these in the back of my truck. But you've got uh, you've broken into some tomahawks, some knives. Your product line has really expanded. I've even seen some pneumatic nailers over there. We do have some licensed products as well, which are uh, our nail guns and some gloves. Uh, we're working on expanding our sporting goods line. We've got a machete, a hunter's axe. We also have a breaching bar for fire service and police and tactical teams. We do a little bit of uh, tomahawks for the military and customize the tomahawk for them with the sand color to match their fatigues. Your new catalog just came out. Y'all have a brand new hammer. Yes, we have uh, an aluminum hammer. It's um, lightweight. It's lighter than titanium. It's got a steel claw and a steel face and it has a canister inside with steel shot so it's also a dead blow and it's uh, available for about half the price of a titanium hammer. What's a dead blow? Dead blow is when you swing, there's no recoil. It will just actually offer a dead blow, as it sounds. So can you sink an 18-penny in one swing, Stephanie? No, I don't think so. I haven't tried, but I have swung my share of uh, our hammers in our quality control lab. Now, y'all also have, on that new hammer, I've seen it on other ones. It's a magnet and it holds the nail. So especially if you're trying to work overhead or, or the top of a sheet of drywall or even hang pictures in a high place, this magnet will hold the nail for the first strike. It's called a magnetic nail starter and you just simply put the nail in and swing and you can do it even if it looks like it's impossible to do. It really works. From start to finish, how long does it take your traditional hammer to get off the assembly line? We start with a six inch billet of steel and it goes through the factory and it takes about a week to get through all of the processes. Where does the steel milled out of? It's in Nebraska. It's a company called Nucor. Looking at all the different lines, we've got concrete hammers over here. What is this pickaxe looking thing? <laughs> That's a paleo pick. Uh, we do have a niche with the geological world and paleontologists. They prefer our rock picks because they're durable and when they take them to the outcrops and they're you know miles and miles away from civilization digging up a dinosaur, they don't want their hammer to break out in the field. So they prefer our picks and we design them to their specs 
to help them in the field. Industry proven across multiple different trades and American-made. Yes. And it was actually part of this national hardware show that we had the idea and started developing this concept of a toolkit that was American-made products that would be custom graphed with Rosie on the House 30th anniversary logos. We used the leather one because it was the only one that they could embed the Rosie on the House logo into. But all of those proceeds benefit our three nonprofits as part of our Thank You for 30 Giving Back campaign here in our 30th anniversary of broadcasting at Rosie on the House. The rest of this month, we'll be talking about the other tools that are available in the kit. Pliers from Channel Lock. You've got Stanley tools, saws, torpedo levels, essentials that homeowners need, utility knife. We're going to talk with Proto, who makes the toolbox itself. That'll all be here through the month of December at Rosie on the House. This month in particular, it's all tools that are made in America, the essentials for every Arizona homeowner. From now until next Saturday and always, we just ask you be thankful for the God above you, the people beside you, and the life before you.